This is Lisa from Salem, Oregon, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month. And there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge. So it is a pretty good deal for just a dollar. And if you step up to the $5 tier, there are even more episodes for you. This week, I'd like to thank Sean, Natalie B., Jen B., Kim C., Rachel, Jade B., April B., and Dee Stickney for joining Patreon. And I'd like to thank Tanya for raising her pledge to the next level. I also need to thank Melissa C. for the donation to the show through PayPal. And if you aren't interested in the monthly donation on Patreon, you can make a one-time donation to the show through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and keeping us ad-free. So thank you. The case that we are covering today is turning out to be a pretty lengthy story. So it's going to have to be split up into two parts. And I really want to just delve right in because, let's get real, Fred has been keeping you waiting for far too long. So let's get going on today's case, the tale of righting our wrongs. Dorka Zeman, a lovely blonde beauty, and Bob Lisker met sometime in 1945. Following about a year of courtship, the couple attended a swanky New Year's Eve party on December 31st, 1946, someplace in Hollywood. They had gone to the party with another couple, where, after everyone had had a few drinks in them, Dorka and Bob received a dare from their friends. They actually dared the couple to get married that very night. And they apparently were never ones to back down in the face of a dare, even if it was something as life-altering as getting married. So Dorka, Bob, and their friends hopped into their car and made a run for the Mexican border and got married right there in Tijuana on January 1st, 1947. At the time, Dorka was 29, a whole decade older than the only 19-year-old Bob. It wasn't too long after the couple's spontaneous wedding that Dorka got pregnant. Unfortunately, she suffered a miscarriage. They did want to have children, and they continued trying for years to come, to no avail. With parenthood seemingly not in the cards for them, they decided to focus on each other and their professional lives. Bob was an attorney, and Dorka worked for Technicolor Film Laboratories as a film cutter. Then, closing in on two decades into Bob and Dorka's marriage, an opportunity to adopt a child was presented to them. It was sometime in 1964 when a client that Bob represented pulled him aside 
and talked to him about something very personal. This client had a teenage daughter that was pregnant and asked Bob about the process of placing the child up for adoption. Without a moment's hesitation, Bob instantly jumped on the chance to adopt the child for himself and Dorka. He looked at this client of his coming to him having been some sort of divine message, like something otherworldly sent this client to him with this child that they wanted to give up to a loving family. So he told the client he and his wife wanted that baby. So on June 24th, 1965, a little baby boy was born. And three days later, he went home with his new family, the Liskers. Bruce would be his name. Sidorka, who was 49 years old when Bruce came home, wasn't really as passionate as Bob had been, at least not from the onset. Did he make that decision unilaterally? I mean, it kind of sounded like it to me. The moment his client told him that they wanted to adopt out their teenage daughter's baby, Bruce was all over it. He wanted the baby. They'd be able to give him a good, solid home. They tried for years to have children, but were unable to. And then he went home that day and told Dorka all about it. It was quite a shock when he came home from work that day and was like, guess what, honey, we're having a baby. But as soon as they brought Bruce home, Dorka fell in love with her new baby boy. She completely embraced her role as a new mom, even leaving her job with Technicolor Labs to be a stay-at-home mom. The Liskers had settled down in Sherman Oaks, the perfect model of suburbia, nestled in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles. It was the idyllic neighborhood to raise a family in, and Bruce very much enjoyed what was nearly a perfect childhood. He spent much of his time outdoors. He played Little League. He enjoyed taking bike rides. The summers would be spent in the family swimming pool. Bruce was a Boy Scout. He developed a love of camping at an early age. And the family also did all the things you do when you live in Southern California. The beaches, the amusement parks. They also took vacations across the country. Bruce, an only child, was indeed very very spoiled. But then sometime after Bruce turned eight or nine years old, there was seemingly an inexplicable shift in his life. His behavior became a bit more unruly and impulsive. His performance in school began taking a nosedive. His grades were dropping and he was starting to become quite the problematic student. The problem was that this was going to mark the beginning of a years-long battle with drug and alcohol addiction that would begin to really escalate when Bruce got closer to double digits. Yeah, it was that young. And this began boiling over at home, too, more so with his mom than his dad. It was starting to become a very serious point of contention between them. Bruce himself would say in a 2005 interview with the Los Angeles Times, that he had become known as the class clown and it started getting him in trouble at school and then in turn in trouble at home. He described himself as being the kind of kid that was always just sort of passed over or ignored and acting out in this manner was his way of getting attention, to be loud and to try and be funny, to stand out in ways that garnered attention even if it was negative attention. Then according to Bruce, he would admit that he began experimenting with alcohol and smoking weed sometime around the age of 10. But within two to three years, by the time he was barely about to be a teenager, he said he began trying harder drugs, including LSD and cocaine. It sounds absolutely crazy to me that a child so young is already getting into these types of drugs. It's beyond the scope of my own experiences. It's so young, you know, I mean, 12, 13 years old. When we think about ourselves or our own children, it's really hard to wrap our heads around that. But Bruce said that's how it was. And in order to pay for the drugs, 
he would steal money from his mom and dad. So yeah, things were going bad fast. And it seemed as though Bruce was butting heads more with his mom than his dad, likely because she was around more. She was home more and dad was always away at work. As time wore on and Bruce's behavior continued to become more and more destructive, and with it, the fights between him and his mom grew worse and were happening more and more often, it was a home that was in constant chaos, and their fights spilled out all over the house and into every room as each of them hysterically followed one another around in a perpetual screaming match that seemed to have no end. And where would dad be while all of this was going on? Well, if he was home, it was like he just sort of tuned it all out, paying no mind to the turmoil that raged on around him. He just sat there, staring at the TV blankly, petting the family dog. Eventually, as mother and son reached their wit's end with one another, either one or both of them would turn to Bob, looking for him to intercede, when the fact was he would really rather have nothing to do with it. So essentially, he'd be forced into stepping into a role as parent and taking charge of the bickering that was going on between his wife and his son. But it's like, come on. I mean, when I read in the LA Times that he'd just sit there petting the dog while his wife and son were at each other's throats, and it was like he was forced into intervening, I wondered why Bob Lisker didn't want or feel compelled to just step in, but also why he wasn't willing to stand up and defend his wife. I mean, because, you know, parents, if your children are in the wrong, I think should have a united front. I don't know if maybe Bob didn't have the energy because he worked so much, or maybe because his wife was older and she was in charge of the home that he left her with all the duties when it came to disciplining. Who knows, but that was the dynamic. And soon things got to a point where Bruce's behavior was completely out of control. So Dorka and Bob resorted to drastic measures. They ended up sending Bruce to a place called Mountain Meadow Ranch. The LA Times described it as a school for troubled children located in Susanville, California. I looked it up and it is still up and running for a 13-day session at the camp is like $3,500 and a 27-day session is like $6,500 so it is not cheap. But anyway, it looks as though Bruce spent his entire 8th and 9th grades at the camp. So between the ages of 13 to 14 or so around there. When he came back home, he enrolled back in regular high school but then he ended up getting kicked out and into continuation school and then kicked out again into another continuation school. And by May of 1982, Bruce was just done with it and dropped out altogether. And he hadn't even turned 17 years old yet. The living situation was growing increasingly more strained, so Bruce proposed a solution to his parents. Just let him get his own place and that will resolve all their problems. They won't have to deal with him. He doesn't have to live under their rules. And it took some convincing, but eventually Dorka and Bob relented. Bruce found a place, a little studio. Rent was just over $200 a month. And it was just a few miles away from his parents' house. And you know, they really seemed to want to see Bruce take this opportunity to turn his life around and to use his independence wisely and to somehow find his own way. They purchased Bruce his own vehicle. They gave him a monthly spending allowance, and they were like, okay, have at it. Good luck. But it probably isn't a shock to anyone listening that it wasn't working. Bruce himself, years later, would admit that he tried to pretend like he was all grown up and living on his own. But the reality was that his parents were paying for everything, and they did everything for him. His mom even continued to grocery shop for him. So despite all that, he was still the spoiled only child, drug addiction and all. And you know, dreamers, when I read this whole thing about moving Bruce out and setting him up with a car and money, and you know what that reminded me of? Remember Elliot Roger? Yeah, him. His parents kind of did the same thing. 
Now, Roger, he wasn't problematic in the same sense that Bruce Lisker was here with his drug use or anything like that. As a matter of fact, that was one of the interesting things about Elliot Roger is that he never had a drug or drinking problem like other troubled young people. But the way Roger's parents thought it would be a good idea to send him off and live on his own to go to school far away, supplied him with more money than he'd have any use for really, and a nice car and just hoped for the best. Yeah, similar things going on here with Bruce. But unlike Elliot Roger, Bruce spent most, if not all, of his time getting high. And by this time, his drug of choice were methamphetamines, which he used intravenously. And when he wasn't doing that, he was smoking weed. Within a month of moving into his own place, he had racked up his first arrest. The charge was assault with a deadly weapon. Bruce had apparently been involved in some sort of road rage incident where the other driver had cut him off. At least that's what he told police. But instead of just punching the horn and moving on, it escalated into a confrontation and Bruce ended up picking up a screwdriver and throwing it at the other driver. Bruce was arrested and charged with assault, but the charges didn't stick and the matter was eventually dropped. And this was basically the path that Bruce Lisker's life was on. And it looked as though he was going nowhere fast. But then, on March 10th, 1983, everything changed. Bruce had been on his own in his little studio for maybe a little bit more than six or seven months or so. And had pretty much accomplished a whole lot of nothing. He did take on a roommate to help pay for a portion of the rent, a then 17-year-old named John Michael Ryan. I will go into more details about him a little bit later on in our story. A 911 call came into dispatch on that March morning, all those years ago, at 11.26 a.m. It was Bruce Lisker. He had gone over to his mom's house that morning because he needed to borrow some tools to work on a repair on his car. She was expecting him, and usually, when he would come by, she would come to the front door when she heard him and the engine of his 66 Ford Mustang pulling up. But this time, she did not appear in the threshold of the door. Bruce walked up and knocked. Still no mom. He tried to open the door and go inside, but it was locked. And this was way out of character for his mom to know that he was coming and to just not be there. So Bruce decided to investigate further. He ran around the back of the house and into the yard. From at least one of the windows in the back, he would be able to see inside the main living room of the home. And when he did, he was barely able to make out what appeared to be his mom's feet protruding from a front hallway. The rest of her was obscured by a wall. Bruce began to panic. He quickly made his way to another window that offered a clearer vantage point. And from there, he could clearly see that his mom was laying on the ground and she was not moving. He next went over to a kitchen window, which is one designed in such a way that he could remove the glass pane and get inside. He described it as a louvered window with fixed horizontal slats, which he could remove and replace easily. As he said, he used to use this window as an entry point and an exit point to sneak in and out of the house while he was living there. He entered the home by way of this kitchen window and ran over to where his mom was. He checked her for signs of life. She wasn't moving, but he could see that she was still breathing, but it was very labored. Dorka had suffered numerous stab wounds, including several to her back and some blunt force injuries about her head and arms. Two knives were still protruding from her back, and in an attempt to help his mother, Bruce pulled those knives out of her. And at some point, he grabbed two other kitchen knives to search the rest of the house to see if his mother's attacker was still on the premises, but nobody else was inside the home. Nearby were one of Bruce's Little League trophies, as well as a metal exercise bar. Both were later determined to have been used by the assailant to bludgeon Dorka, leaving the massive blunt force injuries, several of them to her head and several to her arms, 
where it appeared consistent with being defensive wounds. Dorka's skull was completely bashed in. Her right ear had nearly been severed off, and the bones in her right arm, which she apparently used to try to deflect some of the blows, had been shattered. Dorka also had a length of rope loosely tied around her neck, though there was no indication that it was used to strangle her. Shortly after conducting his cursory search for any intruders inside the house, Bruce picked up the phone and made that 911 call. He was hysterical, yelling into the phone that his mom had been stabbed to please hurry and send an ambulance right away. As the first responders worked on trying to save Dorka's life, Bruce was in a full-blown panic. He would later admit that he was high, and he nervously looked on at the paramedics, pleading with them to get her to the emergency room. And as for Bruce, his hands did have his mother's blood on them. He was becoming increasingly unhinged at the scene, so the police decided to remove him from the home completely, and they were not exactly nice about it. The officers were able to tell to an extent that Bruce was high on something. They placed him in a chokehold in order to subdue him. They put him in handcuffs and escorted him out to one of the police cruisers. As they sat him down in the back seat, he had one request, for them to please pray for his mom. Dorka Lisker was transported to a nearby hospital, but there was nothing that could be done to save her life. She would succumb to her injuries at about 3 p.m. that afternoon. She was 66 years old. The detective who would be in charge of the investigation on this case would be a gentleman by the name of Andrew Monsu. Remember his name. He is very important to this case. Dorka had already been taken to the hospital by the time Monsu arrived. He made his initial walkthrough of the Lisker home shortly afterwards. He made note of a trail of blood throughout the inside of the house. He looked at the two items that Dorka was bludgeoned with, and he was able to determine that the trophy was one that had been awarded to Bruce and the exercise bar belonged to his dad, Bob. The knives that had been used to stab Dorka in the back were steak knives, and Monsu found both of those on the ground near where her body had been laying. There were footprints in blood throughout the house, near the hallway where Dorka was found, bloody footprints leading into the bathroom, into the kitchen, and some out onto the walkway outside the home. Bob Lisker had told investigators that he had just given Dorka $150 in cash the evening before so that she could go shopping for some things that they needed around the house. This money was nowhere to be found anywhere inside the home. A search of Bruce revealed that he was not in possession of the money either. Detective Monsu wanted to talk to Bruce a little bit more extensively since he was the one who discovered the body and made the call to 911. While Dorka was still clinging to life that afternoon, at around 1 p.m., Bruce was brought down to the Van Nuys police station for an interview. Remember, dreamers, Bruce is still 17 years old at this point. His 18th birthday was still about three months away. So Bruce was asked, what was he doing over at his mom's house that morning? And he explained what I had just told you a few minutes ago, that he needed to borrow some tools to do some repairs to his Mustang. And I guess I should tell you now, dreamers, I don't exactly know when Detective Monsu decided that he did not believe a word that Bruce Lisker was saying, but it was pretty much from the moment they sat down and started talking. From minute one, Monsu came to the conclusion that Bruce's story was sketchy and that he was not being forthcoming, and basically pretty much everything he was saying was a lie. One of the first things that Detective Monsu wanted to know was this. If Bruce had peered through a window that gave him a view of the living room, and if he had seen his mom laying motionless on the floor, why didn't he just shatter that window to gain entry? Why did he go to the other side of the house and take the time to dismantle and remove the window panes from the windows that led into the kitchen. 
I mean, he's telling Bruce, you are wasting potentially life-saving moments here. Like if it were anybody else, if they saw someone through a window who seemed to be having a medical emergency, every second is important, right? And the average person would simply smash in the window and crawl through. I personally don't see it being that big of a deal. Putting myself in that same situation, if I looked into a window and saw someone on the ground, I don't even know if I would have anything with me or nearby that would be able to shatter a window. And that whole thing could possibly make the situation even worse if I were to cause a serious injury to myself. And with my luck, that's probably what would have happened. And if I knew of an alternative way that might take a few extra seconds, but I knew was a surefire way to get in without causing any more damage to the house or to myself, I'd probably do the same thing. But then, who knows, if you're in a panic, that you're really thinking that clearly, right? I mean, let's think back to our four-part episode on Kevin Cooper. When the victim, Christopher Hughes, when his dad came over to the Ryan home looking for his son who was supposed to have been home already, he was able to see through either a window or a sliding glass door that the family and his son were laying on the floor inside the master bedroom. And he had made an attempt to break the glass door but was unable to, but he didn't realize that that door was actually unlocked, so he broke in through another door. Clearly, his mind is scattered and he is not thinking straight. So the same, of course, could be said here for Bruce. But, you know, from the very start of this interview, this Detective Monsoo was having with Bruce, I'm pretty sure that he went into this already thinking very negatively of Bruce Lisker. Because from the detective's initial walkthrough of the house upon his arrival at the crime scene, he had already jumped to some early conclusions. And one was that the story Bruce had told that from outside looking in through the windows that he was able to see his mom's body. Monsu said that he walked the perimeter of the home, that he peered in through all of the windows and looked towards the area where Dorka lay dying, and that the story Bruce was telling him did not make any sense. He concluded, having looked through the same windows that Bruce said that he looked into, that he believed it would have not been possible for Bruce to have seen his mom. The sun shone brightly that day. As Monsoon looked into the home from outside, the glare that caught the window pane made it impossible for him to see anything inside that house, especially just the bottom portion of Dorcas' feet protruding from behind the entranceway of that hallway. Monsoon would also take pictures of these supposedly obscured windows. He also went around to the dining room window, and when he looked in from that vantage point, it was clear to him that inside the home, there was a large planter constructed out of bricks that would certainly made it impossible for Bruce to have seen what he said he saw. Detective Monsu was certain that Bruce Lisker was lying through his teeth. Bruce also had another strike against him when it came to Detective Monsu. Monsu knew Bruce. He knew he had been a troublemaker. And he knew Bruce's history. And Monsu was not very fond of him at all. And that is putting it mildly. Sometime later, Monsu described Bruce Lisker as a little punk that has not a problem with getting in your face and shooting off at the mouth. So this is already looking pretty bad for Bruce, right? This detective not only isn't believing his version of what happened when he arrived at his mom's house, but he's also familiar with Bruce's reputation for being a problem teenager, already having a predisposed dislike for the kid. And as the interview starts turning into more of an interrogation, Monsu's disdain for Bruce is growing by the minute. Monsu Mirandized Bruce before he continued any further. 
And according to the LA Times transcript of this initial interview between Bruce and Detective Monsu, it went a little something like this. Monsu stated, Let me tell you what I think happened. You went in the house through the kitchen window. She surprises you there. You guys get into a big fight. You pick the trophy up off your desk that's sitting there. You smack her in the head with it. And Bruce said, insisting, No, I would not do that. Monsu continued. She stumbles down the hallway. There's a workout bar. You pick that up. You smack her and break her arm. She starts running. You get scared. You pick her up. You drag her in there, right by the front door, and then you stab her. Bruce replied, You better stop it, man. Monsu said, How does that sound to you? Bruce answered, That sounds like a lie. That sounds more gruesome than I would even think of doing. It really didn't matter what Bruce had to say from that point forward. He was not going to walk out of that interview room free to go. He wouldn't be walking free at all for a very, very long time to come. Monsu arrested Bruce on suspicion of first-degree murder. Bruce was emphatic. He did not do this, and he was willing to be subjected to a polygraph test in order to prove it. So Monsu agreed to have Bruce take a lie detector test. They went down to the Los Angeles Police Department's headquarters in downtown LA. That's where the department's polygraph examiner worked, and they hooked Bruce up. And the questions they asked included, Did you attack your mom with that trophy? Did you stab your mom? Did you kill your mom? And, according to the examiner, Bruce failed miserably. As a matter of fact, the detective told Bruce that the examiner made the remark that he had never seen someone so deceptive ever before. Now, dreamers, you know and I know how we all take polygraph results with a grain of salt. I bring it up once in a while when we talk about polygraphs in any given episode. It's an investigative tool. I've even heard some say it's more of a way of excluding people rather than including people when looking for suspects. And at the end of the day, they aren't admissible in court anyway. But I have a couple of problems with this particular polygraph. First of all, the line of questioning. It seems a little bit too direct and too linear. I don't know. I'm obviously not a polygrapher, but I guess what I'm saying is I've seen polygraph questions being asked more than once, like in a different form, to see how the answers line up. Like, for example, what's your name? Is your name Bruce? Do you usually go by the name Bruce? Did someone stab your mom? Do you know who stabbed your mom? Is the person who stabbed your mom someone she knew? And then we see where there is deception or where there's not deception, answering the same questions in a variety of forms. And then I don't know if Bruce told the detective that he had just been shooting up meth earlier that day, but if the detective asked him prior to the testing if he had been drinking or using drugs and Bruce said yes, you would think that that would not be the best time to administer a polygraph. But Bruce apparently was the one who insisted to take the lie detector test on the spot. I've read it both ways. I've read that Monsu asked him and I've read that Bruce wanted it. But either way, Bruce may not have known or realized that if he was still high or still coming down, that may have had an adverse effect on his polygraph results. And there is also the matter of the trauma and stress of Bruce finding his mom beaten and stabbed nearly to death. I do believe Dorka was still clinging to life when Bruce was taken in for questioning, and I'm not really sure if he was told or was aware of what her condition was at the time that he was given the polygraph, but certainly he must be in some kind of heightened emotional state, whether he was the one who attacked his mom or simply was the one who happened upon finding her in that condition. 
So as Detective Monsu and Bruce drove back to the police station, Bruce was the one who asked what the results of the test were. And that's when Monsu told him that he failed miserably, worse than any other person that their polygrapher had ever hooked up to his machine. Then there is a matter of whether or not that's true. Because at this point, I don't know how much Bruce knows or understands what Detective Monsu's perception is of him at this point. Because the detective is not obligated to tell Bruce anything that's true. He can lie. He can tell Bruce that he failed even if he didn't. And most of us listening would probably become very guarded with what we say and do from this point forward. Because I can't tell for sure what Bruce is thinking, but if I was in this position, I would not be very trusting of this detective at all. He's gone and accused Bruce of killing his mom. Bruce's natural instincts are to insist that he would never do something like that to her. But I have the feeling from very early on that Detective Monsu was locked in on Bruce. And from there, all he needed to do was make the facts fit his theory. And then another thing that bugs me to no end about this entire supposed interview turned interrogation is I don't know where that exact turning point was. Is it after the Miranda rights are given to the person of interest or to the suspect? When the detective asking the questions begins to start feeling like the interviewee was responsible for the crime and this whole thing starts to shift into an interrogation. But whether this was meant to be an interview or an interrogation, there is one thing that absolutely should not be happening here. Bruce is 17 years old. So in the eyes of the law, he is still a minor. He may be acting and living like he's an adult, living on his own, doing his own thing, whatever, but he's 17. He should not have been taken from the scene of the crime and into the police station for questioning without his dad present. Did Detective Monsu know that? Of course he did. But he took it upon himself to have Bruce handcuffed and placed into the back of that squad car under the guise of removing him from the scene because he was on the brink of hysterics. And then just said to him, okay, let's go to the police station so you can answer some questions. It's hard to say how much clarity Bruce had at this point. His mind is blurred from drugs and trauma of what's happening to his mom. Does he even realize that he's a kid and needs to be questioned with his dad present? Does he realize that he can demand an attorney before he says a word to the detective? Unfortunately, I don't think Bruce was thinking logically at all. And I can't help but feel that Detective Monsu took advantage of Bruce in his most vulnerable state here. And what about Bruce's dad, Bob? He quickly came to realize that his son was the prime suspect in the murder of his wife of 36 years. Of course, Bob is going to want to stand by his son, believe in him that he would never do a thing like this to his own mother. Certainly, they had their differences. They fought bitterly over the past several years over Bruce's behavior, his drug problems, his inability to stay on track in school or to find work, to a point that they actually decided it was better for all involved that they set Bruce up in his own place on their dime just to put some space between them all. Did that arrangement really work? It's hard to say because all this gave Bruce was the freedom to keep going down the same self-destructive path that he had been and he was headed there without having to abide by any of the rules while living under his parents' roof. In the long run, maybe it would have worked itself out. Perhaps Bruce would have grown up and matured and straightened his life out. That's what his parents seem to be hoping for. But the fact is, Bruce up in his own studio apartment was really only a temporary fix, at least to this point. Unless Bruce was going to get some help, this would be akin to putting a band-aid on the problem. Yes, Bob wanted to believe his son was incapable of doing such a thing. But that leaves everyone still wondering, including his own dad. If not Bruce, 
than who? Well, dreamers, I happen to have an answer to that question. There was a potential suspect close to the case. Well, somewhat close. His name was John Michael Ryan. I mentioned him a little while ago. He went by Mike, and we will call him Mike. Like Bruce, Mike was also 17 at the time. And also like Bruce, he was struggling throughout his teen years. He was a virtual roulette wheel of running away, running back, into foster homes, out of foster homes, into mental health facilities, out of mental health facilities, into juvenile detention, out of juvenile detention. His criminal history dated back all the way to age 11, having already been convicted numerous times in juvenile court from everything from petty theft to trespassing to assault with a deadly weapon. And according to the Los Angeles Times, when Mike was evaluated by an expert psychologist for a court hearing some five years earlier when he was 12, they determined that Mike was, in their professional opinion, impulsive, selfish, operating entirely on his own feelings, and completely unpredictable. So, Bruce and Mike, pretty close in age, seemed like two peas in a pod, right? They became acquainted with one another after having both attended some drug treatment meetings the year prior to Dorca's death. Mike was homeless at the time, so Bruce said that he could come crash at his place if he could come up with half the rent, to which Mike readily agreed. Can you guys already sense that this friendship between Bruce and Mike is probably going to not go well? Yeah, anybody could see that. All Mike became to Bruce was a buddy to drink and get high with every single day. And for both of them, their only source of income was to do chores at Bruce's parents' house. They'd go over there, they'd help with some projects, yard work, I guess, whatever Dorka and Bob could come up with for them, and they would pay these boys for their time and their labor. And I'm pretty sure that that money quickly went up in smoke or up into their veins. But really, Dorka and Bob were much kinder than I think I could have been if I was in their position. But then again, I don't know how much or how little they knew of what was really going on with the money that their son was earning from them, you know? They may have suspected that they were getting high, but again, probably just continuing to hope for the best. It's a tough place to be, right? When your soon-to-be adult children are clearly suffering. As a parent, you want to help, but you don't want to enable either. It's tough, really tough, because you just can't walk away because you love them. I do believe that Dorka and Bob were doing the best that they could. At least, that's my opinion. And, not surprisingly, Bruce and Mike began having problems. Mainly due to the fact that Mike was unable to keep up with his end of the bargain to come up with half the rent money each month. So as 1982 was wearing down, Bruce had to tell Mike that he needed to be out by the beginning of 1983. That January, Mike left and headed to Mississippi to stay with his dad. However, as Bob was speaking to investigators, he suddenly recalled something that he and Dorka had discussed the very evening before she was murdered. Mike had actually paid her a visit earlier that day. This would have been on March 9th, a couple of months after he had moved out of Bruce's apartment and supposedly moved to Mississippi. Dorka was somewhat surprised to see Mike as she too thought that he was living out of state. He came by to ask for work so he could earn some money, but she told him that she didn't have anything for him. Both Bob and Bruce told Detective Monsu about this visit. They told him the problems that Bruce had had with Mike, having been forced to kick him out just that January. 
and they made it clear to the detective that Mike had a troubled history with drug addiction and criminal behavior. They both told Monsu he needs to take a look at Mike as a possible person of interest in this case. Well, Monsu supposedly did check into the information that Bob and Bruce had provided. He found Mike living in Mississippi, but he was locked up in juvenile detention. He was caught attempting to break in and burglarize an apartment. Monsu contacted law enforcement in Mississippi and asked them if they could question Mike on his behalf and ask him if he could account for where he was on the day before and the day of Dorka's murder. That would be March 9th and 10th. Mike explained that he was staying at a motel in Hollywood, and this kind of raised a red flag for Detective Monsu because it seemed odd to him that Mike would be so willing to actually admit that he was only a dozen miles away or so from the Lisker home during the time that Dorka was murdered. He provided a time at which he checked into the motel, but Detective Monsu was quickly able to ascertain that Mike was being untruthful about the time that he actually checked in. Then Mike told the detective that on the morning of March 11th, he purchased a one-way bus ticket back to Mississippi. This is all super suspicious, right, dreamers? Well, maybe not to everybody. Monsu asked Mike, what about the money? Where did you get all this money to do this cross-country traveling, renting a motel, as well as getting food and other things that you needed along the way? Mike explained that when he departed Mississippi, heading towards California, he brought with him $52. Well, what did you spend that money on? Mike explained that he purchased drugs and food and a bus ticket and paid for his motel, which was $21 for one night. It doesn't take a math wizard to figure out that it is probably more than the $52 that Mike claimed that he had brought with him, the cost of all of these things. So being the keen detective that he has been thus far in the investigation, Monsu's somewhat concerned that something isn't quite adding up here with this Mike kid he pressed him for a little bit more information about his visit to California. And Mike just told him he doesn't know. He doesn't really think too much about that trip to California. It was just a quick visit. And as for Dorka's murder, he didn't know anything about that either. It really wasn't even a passing thought because he had nothing to do with it. Monsu suggested to Mike that he start racking his brain a little bit more because if he doesn't get some useful answers to his questions, he's going to go to Mississippi and he's going to pick his ass up, drag him back to California and toss him into jail. But for whatever reason, whatever curiosity or concern that Detective Monsu had in terms of Mike being a possible person of interest in Dorka's murder... Well, it kind of, sort of, just fizzled away. Mike never really gave any meaningful, satisfactory answers, and Detective Monsu quietly moved on from him. Weird, right? So you might be asking yourselves, how is it with all of these strange circumstances surrounding Mike, the problems and the falling out that he had had with Bruce, the unexplained turnaround trip from Mississippi to California and back, pretty much during the same exact time frame as the murder, the random visit he paid Dorka looking for work, leaving town the very next morning following her death, not to mention his criminal history, convictions, substance abuse, issues, etc., etc. How is it that this Detective Monsu was so quickly and easily deciding that Mike Ryan was no longer a viable suspect? Well, according to the documents related to this case, Monsu arrived at the conclusion, erroneously, mind you, that Mike Ryan 
had no criminal history to speak of. When looking at his two potential suspects and seeing who of the two of them had a proclivity for criminal behavior, when it came to Mike, he just didn't see anything concerning from the background check that he ran. And as I mentioned earlier, Monsu already knew of and about Bruce Lisker. He had been a problematic teen. He had been arrested at least once. So to him, with his long history of drug abuse, his history of fighting with his mother, along with at least one arrest for assault with a deadly weapon, even though those charges were dropped, Monsu decided that Bruce was the likely culprit. And he did so by process of elimination based on looking into each of their criminal records. But wait a second. Didn't I just say that from the time that Mike was 11 up until the time of the murder, he had run up quite a lengthy rap sheet with convictions including theft, trespassing, and assault with a deadly weapon? Mike had a criminal history, quite an extensive one. And when Monsu tracked him down, he was in juvenile detention, for God's sakes, for trying to break into a woman's apartment. How in the hell did Monsu arrive at the conclusion that Mike had no criminal history? Well, when he ran his background check of the criminal records and he searched Mike's name, he used the wrong date of birth. Can you believe that? According to the Los Angeles Times article on this case, there was a note written down in the case file that said John Michael Ryan, birth date 1-24-66, no record. Before I move on in the story, I need to interject an observation of my own here. I could not help but wonder this. Did Detective Monsu ever take a moment to consider a motive in this case? We'll hear about motive later on, but you always hear police or investigators or prosecutors pose that question. Who has the most to gain from somebody's death? When you consider Monsu's two prime suspects here, Mike and Bruce, I mean, really think about it for a moment. Bruce is living in a place near enough to be conveniently close to his parents so they can continue to help him with his day-to-day life, but not under the same roof where they have to contend with his substance abuse and the fighting and the stress that goes along with that. Bruce's parents pay his rent. They pay all his bills. They provided him a car. They brought him groceries. They gave him money. They even paid him to come and do work and chores around the house. Why in the world would Bruce do anything to jeopardize that? His parents clearly cared about him and his well-being. They're not kicking him out. They're not refusing to help him. They wanted to see him get better, but understood that Bruce was the kind of person that needed to do it in his own way and on his own terms. And then stop and consider Mike Ryan. He was just as troubled, if not more so, than Bruce. And this was a thing that the two of them thought that they could bond over. Mike was homeless. His family could not or would not put up with him, nor would they put him up anywhere in the same manner that Bruce's parents were willing to do so for him. Mike was in and out of the foster care system, the mental health institutions, and the juvenile detention system. He had very little to no family support. Mike latched onto Bruce, who obviously is not in any position to take on any charity cases himself, but maybe naively thought that he would be able to benefit if Mike would be able to scrape together the $100 a month or so to cover half the rent. But it clearly was not going to work out. Mike was not going to be able to pay rent, and ultimately Bruce had to tell him he had to move. However, what is Mike taking with him when he does finally move out? Well, now, Mike has a resource. Bruce had introduced Mike to his parents, 
Together, they did odd jobs for mom and dad. So Mike became well aware that Bruce had a pretty good setup going on with his parents. He could see that they had a stable home. Albeit things were problematic with Bruce, they still had him set up pretty nicely. And Mike is probably spending a significant amount of time around and inside the Lisker home. He knew the house. He was familiar with the layout. He knew their routines. So when things went sour between himself and Bruce, and suddenly the cozy little living situation and opportunity to earn a few dollars here and there from the Liskers was gone, how was Mike going to feel about that? He could be resentful. He might not have really cared anymore, knowing that Dorka would be home most of the day, every day. He could easily overtake her, rob her, and then run back to Mississippi. And he did come by less than 24 hours before she was murdered. He wanted work, he wanted money, and she said no. So when we think about a motive, who of these two really truly has one? To me, it sounded like Mike had the most to gain from Dorcas's death, while Bruce actually had the most to lose. None of that really mattered, though. From the moment officers first placed a distraught and hysterical Bruce Lisker in the back of that patrol car at the scene of the crime, they believed him to have been the attacker. He had blood on his hands from his own admission that he pulled the knives out of his mother's back. So literally caught red-handed, at least in law enforcement's eyes. And Bruce would be the first to admit he knows that he needed to be investigated. They needed to talk to him and to get information from him. But when Detective Monsu, after listening to what Bruce had to tell him about that morning and having discovered his mom, Monsu told him every single word, start to finish, was all lies. Nothing that Bruce was saying made any sense. Nothing that he was saying added up. And none of what he was telling fits what they found. Monsu told Bruce to his face, you did this to your mom. Bruce knew that he was in deep and he wasn't sure if he was ever going to be able to dig himself out. Bruce's dad had shown up at the police station having come directly from the hospital. Dorka did not pull through and he had come to see his son and break the news to him. Then Bob Lisker asked Detective Monsu, I want to go home. When can we go home? And Monsu quickly told him, You're not taking him home. I'm arresting him, and he'll be at the Silmar Juvenile Detention Center. Bruce tried to read the look on his father's face, but he was silent and blank. He was just shocked beyond words. Bruce had insisted to his father and to Monsu, pleaded with the both of them to believe him that he did not hurt his mom. He begged Monsu to look into his former roommate, Mike. But Detective Monsu became focused and stayed focused on Bruce Lisker as being the one responsible for his mother's murder. To the detective... This case was open and shut. Bruce Lisker would tell anyone and everyone who would care to listen to him back in 1983 that he never laid a hand on his mother. They fought, yes. The teen years were a struggle, yes. But they loved each other deeply. Yet nobody listened. Detective Monsu became laser-focused on Bruce and he was determined to see him convicted of killing his mother. At the time, Detective Andrew Monsu was a new, young, up-and-coming detective. Some have said that Dorka Lisker's murder was his first major homicide that he'd ever worked. So I guess this would explain some of the pedestrian missteps that he took during the early stages of the investigation I had brought up earlier. When he decided to remove Mike Ryan from his suspect list, 
It wasn't because he had thoroughly investigated and considered all the facts. It was because he had already tried and convicted Bruce in his own mind. He had no reason to want to waste his time and energy chasing down other leads when he had his killer right there. So from that point forward, Monsu focused on building his case against Bruce. And the things that he would say about Bruce and the murder of his mother were not necessarily the actual truth. So long as in the end, Bruce would be the one to stand trial for the crime, Monsu was going to go with it. For example, at a preliminary hearing, Detective Monsu testified in open court, under oath and in front of the judge, that blood spatter was found on Bruce's shirt and that was indicative of him having been the one standing over his mom during the time that she was being beaten about the head with the trophy and the exercise bar. Monsu also managed to come up with a witness who would testify that Bruce actually confessed to him that he was the one who committed the murder. Well, who was this witness? It was a guy named Robert Hughes, and he said in no uncertain terms, Bruce Lisker told him that he murdered his mom. Really? The guy who was so adamantly denied that he had anything to do with it suddenly confesses to this Robert Hughes person? Okay, so who is Robert Hughes? Turns out that in 1983, when Bruce was arrested and being held in custody awaiting trial, Robert was a fellow inmate who was in a cell adjacent to Bruce's. And apparently during that time, Bruce felt the need to unload the burden of what he had done and decided that the guy in the next cell over would be a great sounding board. According to Robert, Bruce gave him all the gruesome details of how the murder went down that morning. He even called Bruce a Jekyll and Hyde type of person who was able to seem completely normal and composed in one minute, but would suddenly turn on a dime if something set him off. And his mom had unfortunately fell victim to his dark, violent side. So as Detective Monsu continued to spin this story, making Bruce look worse at every turn, Bruce and his father started to feel like they were looking at an impossible battle to win. When you stack Bruce and his checkered past and his character up against that of this detective and his word, who is everyone going to believe? Probably not Bruce. Monsu was laying it on thick, and Bruce continued to insist that all of this was untrue. Everything that Monsu was saying were lies, and it was all a way of pinning this murder on the convenient person. But how in the world do you prove something like that? His father, Bob, he would never in a million years believe that his son would ever harm his mother. Absolutely, it is not a thing that he would have done. But to him, the case that was being presented against Bruce was becoming too much. The real fear for Bob began sinking in. He no longer had his wife of 36 years by his side. And now he was on the verge of possibly losing his own son too. It was more than Bob could take. And he started thinking that maybe the best thing would be for Bruce to accept the plea deal. That way he could serve a minimal amount of time in a juvenile facility. And when that was over, he would be able to come home to his dad and try to rebuild their lives together and move on. The other option, going away to prison for life, was something that Bob Lisker could not bear. So after doing a lot of soul searching together, Bob and Bruce decided that the best thing for the long run would be for Bruce to just plead guilty. Now dreamers, many times over we have seen confessions come out in court from defendants that we know are guilty of the crime that they're being accused of. 
but they would continue to insist that they were innocent and that pleading guilty was the best thing for the circumstances that they were in. There are those who refuse to take the plea deal and they roll the dice and they go to trial. Sometimes they are convicted, other times they are acquitted. Some cases get so complicated that the truth becomes almost impossible to get to because of the passage of time, the fading of memories, the death of witnesses, and we end up with what's called an Alford plea. And you know, it's where the defendant can continue to assert that they are innocent. They don't have to admit that they're guilty, but they do accept that there is enough evidence to probably find them guilty. We've had this type of plea in two very high-profile cases that have been extensively covered by numerous podcasts in the case of the West Memphis Three and the Staircase Guy, Michael Peterson. In both cases, convictions were had. Years in prison were served, and in the case of West Memphis Three, death row even. But those convictions were subsequently overturned in appeals. Eventually, they would settle on Alfred pleas. Whether or not any of us listening believe that the West Memphis Three are guilty or innocent, or whether or not we believe Michael Peterson is guilty or innocent, is just not a debate that I'm going to care to get into. But they've essentially accepted responsibility in a roundabout way. They've served a significant amount of time and for the most part have been able to move on. But when defendants plead guilty, we tell ourselves there is no way that this person is going to plead guilty if they are truly innocent. But does it happen? Yeah, it does. Especially when you don't have the resources or ability to fight the case that's being built against you. And you can sit there and claim all you want that police and the prosecution are lying. But we've come to find that time and time again, The default for the courts is to just believe them. The police are not supposed to lie, right? And the prosecutor can only go on what the investigators tell them. So if you ask Bruce, why plead guilty if you're innocent? And he would say the reality of what was actually happening to him was sinking in. He was looking at the possibility of facing a prison sentence of 25 years to life. At that point, the only thing that really mattered to Bruce anymore was that whatever he decided to do, that his dad believed in him. And the best thing for the both of them would be for Bruce to come home as soon as he could. Sitting in jail for the rest of his life because he couldn't prove the truth wasn't worth it. Serving a five-year sentence or so in juvie, it was better than the other options even if it meant he had to admit that he killed his mom. But if he would ever say those words in court, he would never say it anywhere else. Bruce saying that he killed his mom was just another lie in this case. Okay, my dreamers, we are going to stop this story right here. I have most of the second part of this case ready to be recorded and it will be out hopefully by Friday so you won't have to wait too long to find out what happens here. And I will do all of our usual closing stuff at the end of part two, including our birthday shoutouts. Thank you so much for listening. Keep your eyes and ears peeled for the conclusion of this case. And until then, sweet dreams. <laughs>